Hi, this is Don from Mayleaf and welcome to another episode of Tea Lifted Conversations, our series of informal conversations over tea about a wide variety of topics. Sharing conversations over tea has a unique capacity to expose and hopefully dissolve tribalism and engender free, uninhibited conversation. And I hope this series provides some interesting viewpoints and ideas which engage, entertain and inspire. In today's conversation, I'm talking to Cliff Little, a retired food technologist who used to work at Nestle and Associated British Foods for over 35 years. Since retirement, he has spent his time immersed in tea, combining his passion and food science training to enjoy and understand this magical leaf. Cliff has written a book called Tea Leaf to Cup, which is available on Amazon. Before we get stuck in, if you enjoy this podcast and you would like to support us, then head over to mayleaf.com and treat yourself to some pinnacle tea and teaware. It's as simple as that. Right. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Cliff. How are you? Oh, very well, thank you, Don. And hopefully you are too. And all your family's keeping well. Yeah, we're all keeping well. We're all keeping well. London is slowly sort of opening up again from lockdown. So it's uh, interesting to watch everyone sort of venture out into the streets again. How is it where you are? Which part of the world, uh, which part of the UK are you? Well, I live in Pershaw, which is midway between Worcester and um, Eversham. And Worcester's the home of Worcester Porcelain, of course. Eversham is their most famous um, design on their tea sets. And that features the Pershaw Plum, which is where I am, near Pershaw, um, where the plums come from. You surrounded by, by plum orchards? Yeah, they're beginning to develop now, the plums, the, the damsons and fruits come in and tons and tons of blackberries. So I'm really looking forward to a bountiful autumn, I hope. So we are here today to uh, talk to you about some of your thoughts regarding Gushu tea, regarding the age of tea trees, and broadly talking about the concepts of genetics in tea plants and botany in general. I've already spoken in the intro a little bit about your background, which is in the food sciences, but maybe you could take us through your tea journey. You could tell us your love affair of tea, how that started. Give us a rundown of when you were bitten by the tea bug? Well, I've always been a tea person and tea was very cultural in my family. It's what we had. Um, when when I was young, coffee was really just coming in. Um, tea became the family drink. Uh, I'm intolerant to milk, which I didn't understand at the time, but I've later come to realize that I am intolerant. Uh, I had less and less milk in my tea. People always overdose on English tea uh, to the point where I just gave up drinking milk and found I could taste tea, which was most unusual. And I'm a bit of an oddity culturally in my family of having black tea. But you really can taste the tea if you have black tea. That led me on to speciality teas and then you go down this rabbit hole of trying different flavours. Then I've ventured into green tea, which came from a tea bag and was pretty ghastly. And most UK people say, I don't like green tea. And having tried a tea bag, I can understand that. Um, I tried 
speciality green tea and that was the end of me i am totally consumed by the beverage which i now consume i'm i'm a tea nutcase i read about tea i drink tea i buy teaware it's consumed me don <laughs> <laughs> don't worry we i'm pretty sure that most listeners are, are are very much with you on this we we fully understand that obsession so how does this fit in with your history regarding your uh, your work in food sciences was this around the same time or was this afterwards it, it was really late in my career that um, I suddenly realised that um, I needed to understand a little bit more about how the flavour of tea came about. I didn't always agree with some of the things I was reading on the internet. It, it has a host of um, jolly good things and some pretty awful things, really. Yeah, yeah. And trying to discern what was the good bits and what wasn't led me down to reading some scientific papers, which largely I can understand, although some of them do beat me. Um, and from that, I think I understand a little bit more now how the flavour comes from the plant, the process of the flavour, how the flavours create within the tea, and how anybody can make the same tea twice is impossible and hearing the podcast by Virginia Lovelace was absolutely fantastic because it's the reception of the taste and all the different cocktail of chemicals which I find particularly absolutely fascinating so there's the transmission of a flavour and there's the receipt of a flavour and that differs week to week. Absolutely. So what you're talking about, and I think the reason why the rabbit hole is so endless with tea is the, the level of impermanence that happens with tea. Every year, as you say, the tea is going to be different, even if you pick it from the same tree. Then the processing is going to be slightly different depending upon the, the weather, depending upon the people processing it, depending upon certain conditions. And then the transport is going to be different. The storage is going to be different. Then the brewing is going to be different. And finally, as we discovered in the last podcast, the way that you receive the tea is going to be different between different people as well as within the same, you know, the same olfactory system. The same person is going to week in, week out, be tasting and smelling things differently. And that means that there's just an infinite amount of variation in tea. And that's why we fall in love with it uh, so much. But what I would like to talk about with you specifically is the genetics, because I think you have a very interesting take on the genetics of the cultivars of these tea plants. And I should say, uh, before we dive into it, that you have written a book called Tea Leaf to Cup, from creation to modern cup, which is remarkably, uh, you, you managed to fit in a remarkable amount of information in such a slim book, Cliff, I have to say. <laughs> it's, a, it's a feat that you managed to put. I mean, it is jam-packed with information. So anybody out there who wants to uh, jump in on, on this journey, and it's a great book for 
beginners all the way to intermediate and advanced uh, tea heads out there. So definitely go pick that up. And in that book, you talk about genetics and you talk about genetic mutations. Can we start to dive into to that subject uh, and maybe lead us into your thinking of why you started to look at genetics and, and what that meant in terms of tea flavor? Um, yes. What, what the, one of the things that um, struck me that um, Oriental beauty and reading about that suddenly spurred me on into this side of it, that you get something like a thrip coming along on the tea, scraping away, and the bitter flavours which are in the tea deter it. The insect evolves to suck the sap. In sucking the sap, terpenes and fragrances are released to deter that green fly type effect. The green fly either disappears or carries on eating, but this cloud of gas or flavours and aromas like you would get with a rose smell attracting um, a, a bumblebee uh, attracts uh, ladybirds and the ladybirds are a threat to the green fly so now the ladybirds will eat the threat on the plant this then goes through a co-evolutionary process of the insects overcome the defense the plant overcomes the attack and it goes on and on till we've got a whole host of millions of insects, millions of plants. But the tea plant is evolving all the time these different defensive molecules. Now, some of those are in the genes of the plant. So when the insect comes along, it's already got that gene inside its DNA. It need not necessarily be expressed and these genes are in there and get switched on by the insect. Now, some of these genes become permanently switched on. So you're imparting this flavor into the tea all the time from these switched on genes. Others develop in the plant. This will then overcome new threats. So I believe the older a tree gets, the more of these genes are incorporated into the DNA of the tree. More and more chemicals, more and more flavours. So you've got a co-evolutionary um, attack on the tree, really, and the defence on the tree. And all we're tasting with tea is defensive chemicals. There's no reason why a tree or a plant should um, have damascanone, for example, or indole. It does that because it's a secondary metabolite, not essential for the growth and reproduction of the plant, but it's there in the DNA, and all these chemicals then build up a cocktail. The older the tree, the bigger the cocktail. So let's just go back and let me just rephrase what you've just said, just so that I... Um, clear that I understand it. So we're talking about uh, the plant's reaction to external events. So insect bites, uh, it could be the environment that causes stress. But what we are saying is that the majority of the secondary metabolites that uh, delight us 
with their aromatics and their taste come from a plant's reaction to environment, invariably a plant's reaction to some sort of stress. Is that correct? Yes, we call it abiotic or biotic stress. So the um, terroir tends to come into our minds as um, abiotic stress, the environment, the, the cold, the hot, the UV light, the wind, rain, all these damage to it. That's the abiotic stress. But there's also the biotic stress, which is um, mammals munching, insects eating it, and um, fungus, bacteria. So as I said many, as I've said many times, a plant can't run away. Or, you know, so a plant is using aromatics and uh, volatiles and chemicals to to either repel or attract, depending on what they're trying to achieve. And what you're saying is that within the genetic structure of the plant, you will have, just like in animals, genes which sort of lie dormant and then will be switched on depending upon what's happening in their environment. I, I guess this is a form of epigenetics in plants. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Um, if you take a plant in India as opposed to a plant in China, you've got the Himalayas in between, uh, and, and they don't travel very easily. So there'll be different threats in an Indian plant than there would in a Chinese plant and different insects which are attacking it. So it needs to defend against the ones that it's likely to encounter, which wouldn't be everything. So this is basically turning on the, turning on the genes um, in response to external events. Yes. And that is a form of epigenetics, which is essentially sort of, you have, a, you have your makeup of genes, but the way that you express those genes is being determined throughout uh, life, throughout the experiences that the plant uh, has during its, uh, during its existence. Yes, it is, yep. Um, if, if we go for, from the turning on of the gene, the gene is turned on, and you mentioned volatile organic compounds. Clearly, if the plant expressed these volatile compounds all the time to resist a potential threat, it wouldn't have any left and it would expend all its energy in trying to produce compounds that are absolutely no use. A mayfly comes once a year, but the plant has to remember this mayfly next year. So it doesn't deter a mayfly for 11 months of the year, but it needs to remember the next time it gets attacked. And it does this by turning on the gene which is now expressed, and we call that the DNA has the gene, so that's the genotype, and it expresses it, which is called the phenotype. The phenotype is the characteristics that we can see and smell, um, and, and that comes about through environmental external forces, both uh, from the environment and from... Um, living organisms so the gene gets turned on and then it locks it down as you rightly said in the past in some of your videos it's got a glucoside 
which is a molecule of sugar which anchors down that volatile compound until it's needed. So when the threat comes along, it breaks off that sugar, releasing the volatile compound. So now the plant has made efficient use of its own resources. So it flies off into the atmosphere, deterring the um, insect, but also communicating with different parts of the same plant. So the next leaf adjacent would also get the gene turned on very quickly. So that leaf now is ready for the threat. So it's using its genetics now to get ready for the threat. But that of course goes to plants adjacent, not just the leaves. So you can get an attack in one part of a plantation which spreads this volatile compound manufacture to all the plants in that plantation. So if you're talking of an oriental beauty, which requires um, a jacid attack, that need not necessarily be in the whole field. It can be in one part sure. of the field and then is communicated from the plant to other parts of the field. So there's a, a lot of plant communication coming on. Sure. Sure. So the, the chemicals serve two purposes. They're, they're both to uh, have a direct effect on potentially repelling the jacid, or some people say attracting the predators of the jacid. Yes. And also communicating with the field of around the, the, the adjacent plants. And so you get this very efficient chemical signal, signaling system that has two purposes one direct and one communicative to create a sort of system, uh, system-wide defense against this, uh, against this, this little jacid. And yes. that's yes. A, another reason why the time of year that a tea leaf is picked is so fundamental to the end result in the cup. Because depending upon what is happening in that plant's uh, life, at that particular moment, whether or not it's being bitten by bugs or whether or not the UV is particularly strong at that time of year or whether or not it's gone through a very cold period beforehand or whether or not it's too hot or too dry, etc. Again, that leads us down all the different pathways of variation that leads to different uh, batches of tea. So you have this phenotype expression which is being turned on and changed, but is related to the, let's say, the original DNA of the plant. And then we're talking about as a plant grows and has different stresses and uh, experiences uh, uh, the years that the DNA can mutate. Talk, let's talk about how the, the DNA changes and how that affects different parts of the plant. Well, that again is, is quite interesting. In fact, the, the only part really of a plant that grows um, new cells is the meristem at the very tip uh, of the plant. And this is the bit that gardeners would take out that bud. We take out the buds, of course, with tea, which then allows secondary shoots lower down the plant to grow out outwards but the only part of the plant which is generating new cells is this meristem right at the tip of the plant 
Now, if there's a genetic mutation there, and this happens all the time, mainly they're okay and benign. Sometimes they're beneficial. Sometimes it's like a cancer, which would kill the plant. So the mutation occurs, but it's only on that one branch. Now, that branch may have been subject to an attack or some strange mutation, so the, the flowers would be red on the plant. But on that particular branch, they're not red. Gardeners see this all the time, and they're called sports, where you get a variegated plant, but it suddenly starts producing a non-variegated section of that plant. And anything that comes from that section is non-variegated. So a mutation has occurred there. Now, in life, if you get stacked mutations, a mutation on a mutation on a mutation, it eventually stresses the plant so much. And this is called Muller's ratchet. And the plant eventually would die. What plants do that um, mammals cannot do is to block off that branch so on a tree you've got one branch growing which has had these stacked mutations or cancerous type mutations it you get an induced abscission so it would block off that arm which is diseased and that drops off the rest of the plant remains healthy so you do get a tree which is now able, through this induced abscission, to last a thousand years, which uh, an animal couldn't do because of the mutations which occur throughout the life of a mammal, eventually killing us. That doesn't happen on a tree. So you can get a tree a thousand years old, <clears throat> and trees tend to die through mechanical injury rather than... Um, one of these odd diseases that they get. Uh, it doesn't basically get a cancer in the same way uh, as a mammal would. So you do get mutations occurring, and this is absolute fitness for purpose. Some of them are good, fine. The plant becomes stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And some of it is not so good. And my wife took some cuttings of a lovely pink plant in our garden, put them in the front garden for the neighbours to see, and one of them was white. And this is what happens when you take clones of a tree, which goes back to your Chidan-type trees, the original dark pow trees. There are five or six of those. I think there's only three genetically different ones. So of these five trees if you just take cuttings from one you will be taking these different mutations so you would have not an absolute identical dna copy you would have the older the tree the the more <coughs> excuse me the more different genetic makeups different genotypes would be in there so taking the Chidan trees and then um, cloning from them would be like taking a photocopy of a photocopy. So all clones need not necessarily be the same. The older 
the plant, the more the clone is likely to be different. Right. So I think it's worth us uh, just reinforcing this point because it is fascinating and it's sort of a very simplistic idea that a lot of people have that asexual propagation, in other words, taking a cutting of a plant and uh, propagating it would lead to a genetically identical plant. So we've already established that even if it is genetically identical, it's going to express itself, it's, it's going to express its phenotype in a different way depending upon its environment, depending upon the time of year, depending upon lots of different factors that are external. So put that to one side. Also, the cutting of the plant, especially if the plant is older, so the older the plant is, the more mutations are happening throughout the, uh, the, the creation of these buds and these stems that are being created. And so you are unlikely to be getting a genetically identical plant propagated from the original mother plant's genetic DNA because of these mutations. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yes. The older the tree that you take the cuttings from, the more chance you have of having different DNA and therefore that can express in different phenotypes later on and different flavoured tea. So you would in, in effect take a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy so it keeps going different from the original mother plant. And that's really fascinating because if you refer to uh, the T-type dansong, which I'm sure you're aware of, Dansong oolong teas. They have the original mother trees of particular flavors like Milansiang is honey orchid, or you've got pomelo flower, you've got ginger flower. Essentially, it's different uh, seed propagated trees that have particular flavors that have developed, again, probably due to the many years of experiencing different stresses through the years and developing this flavor arsenal these aromatic compounds that are locked away as glycosides in the plant. And the producers, the farmers, the tea drinkers have ascribed certain flavors to certain ancient mother trees. And then they have taken cuttings from those mother trees to propagate that flavor profile. It might be duck shit, it might be milansiang, as I said, it could be, you know, uh, almond flavor. But what is interesting is the way that they value the tea is how many generations away from the mother tree it is. Because if you have, say, first generation cuttings from the, from the mother tree, that is very extremely expensive tea. Then you get second, third, fourth, etc. And from a sort of layman's point of view, when I was first looking at this, I was thinking, but if it's an asexual propagation, it's a genetically identical clone, then why would there be a price difference? And it's interesting that what you are saying and, and the, the concept of mutations seems to suggest that there is some validity in this idea of, of um, going back to as close to the original genotype as possible. Yeah, yes, very much so. Oh. Although you would go back to the original genotype, um, it, there's nothing wrong with the developing flavour of having... Uh, no, of course not. Uh, yeah, sure. ...one particular flavour, and then it enhances or detracts or re reduces in second and third generation. And I think Bay do 
is um, labelled as Generation, I think, isn't it? Or is it Rogue One? One of the... Um, yeah, it's Beidou. So for those of you who don't understand what we're talking about, Qi Dan is considered one of the original cultivar types of Da Hong Pao, which is a very famous Chinese rock oolong. And Beidou um, is, has supposedly been propagated and created from cuttings of the mother plant. But as Cliff is saying very clearly, that really does not mean that they are genetically identical. And what's so fascinating is that within the same plant, depending upon the age, you will have a different expression of the phenotype, but also different parts of the plant will have different genotypes. And that will, again, add more complexity, more character potentially to the tea. And as Cliff said, it could be beneficial, it could be harmful. And the plant has a remarkable way of adapting when it is harmful. And you've got that, what is it, Muller's Ratchet, did you call it? Muller's Ratchet, yeah. It's mutation upon mutation upon mutation. And, and you see it all the time in, tr- in trees. You'll see a dead branch. It's, it's obviously had something wrong with it. Um, and it, it just dies back. You, they call it dieback in gardeners. So you do get the plant falling back. Uh, to the point where the minerals and nutrients don't go up that branch and it, it just drops off and the tree then recovers, just carries on growing as if nothing had happened. If only us humans could do that. Oh, absolutely. We'd live forever then. Might not be a good thing in some people. <laughs> there, you, there you go. Okay, so now that we've, we've set the background, I want to focus our attention squarely on age of tea tree um, and particularly Gushu, because we all know, well, anybody who really you know drinks tea in any serious way has experienced the fact that not just with Pueti, which is very commonly um, referred to in the in in the discussions, but in all tea types, the older the tea tree pretty much universally will produce a more characterful brew, a more interesting, uh, complex array of flavors, aromatics, and sensations, physicality, all of those things, all of those, those markers that we use to determine quality in tea and to enjoy our tea, tend to be enhanced by older tea trees. Now, the given knowledge that I was given by farmers and by producers and by scholars out there in the East was that this is due to the fact that, well, it was a various different reasons. One of them would be that the roots were deeper and therefore accessing more uh, nutrient-rich or different mineral uh, compounds in the soil that other younger tea plants couldn't reach. There was also the discussion of the idea that the age itself gave certain maturity to the taste because of the fact that the leaves were more slow growing because of the fact that the plant didn't have to compete to survive, you know, against uh, all the other plants that are being grown in terms of plantation teas and therefore is more slow growing and could take its time to build up nutrients and flavor. And simply 
the age of the tea tree somehow imbued a sort of more mature taste in the tea. But what's fascinating by the, what you were talking about previously is that there seems to be a, a distinct scientific reasoning behind the maturation of flavor in older tea trees, the combination of the learnt adaptation to external events through, you know, experiences, essentially, experiencing different stresses and therefore learning from it and building up these, these stored compounds, these glycosides ready for use whenever necessary. And also these mutations causing within the same plant, therefore within a forest, multiple different genotypes being picked in one batch. Is this something that, that you have come up with? Is this something that you have read in other places regarding tea, or is this your own theory? Uh, yeah, uh, basically, it's, um, it's my own theory on this, uh, and I gave a lot of thought to, uh, we've had conversations on Gushu in the past, and um, all the trees, yeah, do they grow slower? And I'm not sure that the leaf actually does grow slower, because a, a tree will burst into leaf when when the spring comes, is it growing any slower? I think there's a lot of validity in these things, but I don't think it adds the whole picture. And does it have deeper roots? Now, does a, a tree of a particular size, after 100 years, have less deep roots than one of 500 years old? And I'd I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but I suspect it is not the case. Then I thought, are the roots going down and accessing minerals? Maybe they are, and I'm sure all these things do come into play. Without doubt, these things affect the flavour of tea. But is, if it's going down, what, what's it um, accessing? Is it um, aluminium, magnesium? What, what do we mean by this minerality in tea? And I'm not sure we can taste minerality as minerals. I think it's a descriptive term for a flavour, but not necessarily indicative of it's got minerals in it. So I, I got thinking around this, and this then came into, well, if a tree is old, it's going to have been through a 500 year tree will have gone through um, warm periods colder periods floods winds floods which might occur once every 100 years we in Worcester we have a 50 year flood and a 100 year flood and the 100 year floods which we had a couple of years ago are pretty bad now if you're a tree and you suddenly experience this you're going to start defending that and the plant remembers it through its um, DNA. So, so it's, it's ready for a flood, albeit it doesn't happen very often, but it's a flood and an excessively dry period, which it gets ready for, a very windy, mechanically damaging period it gets used to. It might have had, it wouldn't have had locusts, but a locust infestation type event so it's ready for that 
albeit it's only happened once or twice in its whole lifetime. So an old tree, it's almost got received wisdom. A tree is wise. And I used to think maybe in the Chinese culture, an old tree is revered because age is important. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's what's fascinating here, so interesting, and this sort of is something that I have noticed as a thread throughout my tea journey, is that you visit these places in the mountains, you speak to various different people involved for generations in their family in tea. And the information when you ask questions can sometimes sound extremely esoteric, a little bit wishy-washy, you know, oh, it's, uh, the, we like to drink Gushi because it, is, it, it has age, it has wisdom, it has character that comes from age. So they talk in metaphors, you know, they talk in, in parables. And so you sort of think, well, that's a lovely story. That's something that is, you know, nice to hear. It's very poetic. But you don't really give it that much credence. And what I found throughout my tea journey is that when you then do the reverse and you start to try to look at the science behind something, uh, look at the reasoning, look at the logic behind something, that it somehow seems to marry with this very sort of interesting um, poetic concept or idea that is being professed by the the people in in who who are who are producing the tea and it's 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 so lovely when that happens it's sort of you get this full circle where you you can go back to the producer and say you know what you're right it is because the tea is wise it is because the plant is wise and the tree is wise because it has learnt through the years, through all of the experiences, through hundreds of years, through, through what is multiple generations of human life, it has learned from its experiences. And there is, a, there is a scientific backing that supports that idea that it will lead to more complex flavor. And I love that, that completion of the circle. If you're a plantation owner, you're going to come up with these old trees and say, oh, this does taste better why does it taste better and then not really understanding science of it it's an aged tree and age has got this energy old trees have ancient energy and it's explained that way and basically they're saying yes it works and we don't care it it works what's your problem so i think gushu tea works and I don't think it's due primarily to deep roots or growing slower. I think it's because it's in a, a forest and it's subject to threats over its lifetime, threats near it as well, so other plants are communicating with it. And also, it doesn't have insecticides and pesticides and fertilisers. So everything in that tree means it has to get it from the forest or the plantation, or the area it's in, it's organic, so it stands by its own strength or wisdom. And that's why it's likely that there will be a reduced amount of cocktail, chemical cocktail variety, the, the qualitative side of it, 
in in a plant which has had artificial insecticides on it it doesn't need to repel the threat it doesn't have the threat so it won't have developed that maturity of flavor ah that's very interesting as well yeah i mean that i hadn't thought about that yeah so so not only are younger plantation teas uh, therefore let's say have less maturity in terms of flavor because they've lived shorter lives with less experience but they're also sort of protected potentially using artificial sort of methods to reduce infestation and to aid the plant through fertilization giving everything that the the plant needs and therefore it's not needed to develop this mature flavor which potentially let's say a 10-year-old tree left unattended um in in a in a forest would probably taste very different from a 10-year-old tree a 10-year-old plant that had been kept very you know pristinely maybe sprayed given fertilizer it would taste very different simply on the basis that it's had less stress very much so yeah and i really do think that comes into it there's this um plant communication as well which is occurring it it doesn't need to um develop itself it doesn't need to develop it's fine and and it just grows and so you don't get that quality of of flavor and, and effect and, and and we all know that for some reason poor does make you tea drunk whether it's because i have it stronger uh, and take a tea session over about 15 steeps of of an 8 to 10 gram steeping but it, it does impart this energy into you that is very difficult to explain and I can't explain it, but it does make you feel different. I find it a very joyous thing when you can take ancient ideas and you can take sort of beautiful prose and poetic thoughts and you can attach them to some sort of scientific reasoning and make that connection full circle. And it's also interesting to me that I always tell people that um, – wild teas or teas that are a little bit more uh, unkept or managed but but relatively unkept or tea trees that are growing in stressful environments like the rock oolongs that are clinging on for dear life at, on cliffs and 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 rocks you know that that level of stress that that level of un, untamed environment produces the highest quality tea and everyone knows this because the prices are are ridiculously high for those kinds of teas but it is not just a gimmick it's not just related to oh some storytelling of like this is wild tea it is based on the idea that a plant's expression of flavor eventually in the cup is determined by its experience and the parallel to mammals and to humans is the same. You know, uh, a person who develops real character, who has something to say, who, who can contribute uh, sort of interest and beauty in the world, tends to be people that have lived rich lives and have experienced, you know, hardships as well as, you know, having joy in their life. But 
you know, an easy, spoiled life is not going to necessarily develop or is less likely to develop a characterful person. And it's exactly the same in tea because it's exactly the same process that's happening. We're reacting to our environment. We're having epigenetics and phenotype expressions that come from the environment that we're in and the choices that we make. And, and uh, I just love that parallel that's happening here between humans and plants and between ancient wisdom and modern science. And it's so fascinating to speak to somebody like yourself, Cliff, who, who has a background in food technology, who can bring this wisdom to the community. Um, and, uh, and, and I really think that uh, the more I think about it, it, it has so much validity to it that uh, I'm going to have to uh, change my explanations for Gushu, thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an ever-evolving process, Don, that um, we, we both bring, as, as does Virginia, different things to the party. Um, and we look at things from, from different eyes. And your ability to detect flavours is, is I, I admire you for that and, and wished I could do it to the same um, degree that you, you can. But I think that it's just sit down, drink tea, persist, learn. And, you know, through conversations like this, I hope we can start to generate a little bit more of a nuanced approach to how we perceive flavors in tea and and the knowledge around why those flavors exist. So thank you so much, Cliff, for joining us on this podcast. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to you. As I said, Your book, Tea Leaf to Cup, is a very comprehensive read, all about, well, the history of tea, the different types, the processing. As I said, you managed to cover so much in 150-odd pages. It's quite remarkable. Anybody out there who wants to pick up a copy, just go over to Amazon, type in Clifford Little Tea Leaf to Cup, and I'm sure you'll find it. If you have any problem, then just get in touch with us at Mayleaf, and we'll certainly pass the link on. As I said, it's a very, very nice read and something that is very, very useful to put as a reference on your bookshelf. Thank you so much, Cliff, for joining me. Absolute pleasure, Don, and um, my best regards to your family. And nice to see them on the videos and part of time. Maybe we can do this again, talk about another part of the fascinating world of tea. And I hope that you uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, pleasure, Don. Bye, then. Okay, bye, Cliff.